I got like a, I got a lot of energy. I, I'm, I'm not really sure why. I am excited. Seski was, uh, was speaking, might be too much caffeine, but I just had one cup, just one cup of coffee. Come on. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> we're going to get there. All right, so Psalm 27.10. It says that my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, one of the promises of the resurrection of Jesus is that by grace through faith, we're adopted into the family of God. Right there, that's good news. Right there, we should be screaming amen because that is incredible. That by grace through faith, we're adopted into the family of God. Now, the way we react and respond to this, that varies from person to person. And the reason why is because often, many of us are blind to just how orphaned we were prior to God saving us. We forget. Now, toward the end of the week, this verse from the Psalms came up, and it was super helpful, mostly because there's a sense in which it captures in just one sentence much of what we're going to work through this morning, both symbolically and for the man born blind, literally. Now, what I mean is that for those of us who have experienced this, I was blind, but now I see moment, of that group, not all of us have the same experience or memory of just how blind we were, similar to not knowing just how orphaned we were. And the truth is that the more we allow ourselves to forget the blindness that we've been rescued from, the more space we allow for the darkness to creep in. And once again, we'll see in our passage that it's the religious folk who find themselves deep in the shadows, protected by their rules, and unwilling to see the light of God shining into the darkness. And that's the warning of our passage this morning. But coupled with that warning is a word of hope for those of us struggling in darkness, walking in suffering, God is not finished with us. God is not finished with us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 9. We're going to be working through the entirety of the chapter this morning, so we got a lot of ground to cover. It's 41 verses. We'll have it up on the overhead as well. And so it starts like this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So right there, a couple things stand out. One thing, just to situate ourselves, the text implies that Jesus is probably still in Jerusalem, although the Feast of Tabernacles is most likely over. Now, the reason we can say that, because there's actually no break between what happened in chapter 8 and what's about to go down here in chapter 9. And also, the thematic element of Jesus being the light of the world is still very much in view. Still very much in view. The second thing that I noticed was that it was his disciples who shed light on this situation, that there was a blind man on their path. I think that's so interesting, right? Because Jesus is going to use this, this circumstance, to, to teach a phenomenal lesson, but he doesn't even bring it up. The disciples are like, hey, Jesus, look at that guy over there. Which, like, I don't know, in my brain, I'm sitting here thinking, like, there's this blind man, and, and they, maybe he overhears, like, hey, is this guy a sinner or his parents? 
And he's probably like, come on, man, I've been blind all my life. Like, really? Like, why are you talking smack about me behind my back? Like, like that's how I imagine it going down. Maybe it didn't go down like that at all, right? But that's in my, you know, sanctified or unsanctified imagination. I don't know, you, you tell me. Now, the question they ask about sin, it's actually not a surprising question. According to one commentator, the disciples assume, like most Palestinian Jews of their day, that sin and suffering are intimately connected. Now, in one sense, they're absolutely right. We live in a world that has been broken and disfigured by sin, and part of that brokenness and disfigurement, it plays itself out in the frailty of our bodies. We get sick. Our bodies don't function optimally all the time. Our bodies break down. For some, that comes sooner than later. And, and for others, like the man we're about to encounter, they are born this way. They're born this way. On the other hand, to assume that specific or individual ailments, deformities, illnesses, whether physical, emotional, or cognitive, are the direct result of a specific sin acted out by the person suffering or the parents of the person suffering, this is incredibly dangerous ground to tread. Incredibly dangerous ground. In fact, this thinking actually has more in common with a belief in karma than it does with Christianity. And if we were to continue pulling on this thread, then we would end up in a place where many who claim the name of Jesus have landed, that if I stack up enough good deeds, muster up enough faith, or give enough money, then I will be guaranteed health and prosperity. In the words of New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, and I have a slide for this, we have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine where people put in a coin, a good act or an evil one, and get out a particular result, a reward, or a punishment. Of course, actions always have consequences. Good things often happen as a result of good actions, and bad things often happen through bad actions, but this isn't inevitable. Kindness is sometimes scorned. Some drunkards always get away with it. The point, sometimes bad things just happen. Sometimes the world is unjust, but that doesn't mean God is not at work. And more importantly, at work in and through those bad and unjust circumstances. Check out how Jesus responds, verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. Now, there's a couple things going on here, and I'll start with the latter. Jesus says that, referring to him and his disciples, that we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. See, Jesus is talking about the cross. That's what's happening here. He's talking about the day when that pre-creation darkness and chaos would once again cover the earth. Luke's gospel says it like this. It was now about the sixth hour, noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., because the sun's light had failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last breath. The sun's light failed because the light of the world had been extinguished. But before that was to occur, before the cross, Jesus was teaching and demonstrating to his disciples, those who were with him, 
and those of us sitting here 2,000 years later, what light of the world work looks like. What light of the world work looks like. And, and it looks just like what he did with this blind man. Now hear me out. I'm not saying that we're going to start spitting on the ground and making mud masks for people. I'm also not denying that God is still in the business of healing people, but that's not the point of this passage. What I'm saying is that the sort of posture that Jesus takes is the posture that sees the brokenness of this world not as a problem, follow me, but as an opportunity to display the works of God. Another quote by N.T. Wright, and I have a slide. The chaos and misery of this present world is, it seems, the raw material out of which the loving, wise, and just God is making his new creation. Just catch that. The misery, the brokenness, the pain, the suffering, those are the raw materials that our God uses to bring about new creation. That's such good news because every single person in this room carries with them chaos, misery, pain, suffering, physical, emotional, whatever the case. We all brought it in here this morning. And if you claim, like, maybe you're having a good day. But if you zoom out, if you look over the course of maybe the past year, five years, ten years, whatever the case may be, you've experienced this. And what God says, he says, I know. It's not a problem. It's an opportunity for me to work. You catch that? Like, man, that's such good news. That's such good news. That God enters into that chaos and he takes it. Right, these, these, these broken vessels that we are, and, and he just molds it into something beautiful. That's how his grace works. That's, that's what this whole thing, this, this grace thing, this Christianity thing that we've hitched our carts to is all about. He takes broken things and he makes them new. That's good news, Redeemer. And we got we to cling to that. We got to cling to that. We can't allow ourselves to be defined by the brokenness because we're actually defined by, by King Jesus. And he enters into that mess and he breathes new creation life into it. It's good news because we live in a world filled to the brim with brokenness. Physical brokenness, emotional and cognitive brokenness cultural, political, and societal brokenness, relational brokenness, sexual brokenness. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're hurting. Some of you, that hurt was inflicted upon you. And some of you were simply born into an unfair circumstance, or you have children who were born into an unfair circumstance. The text says that this man was born blind. Born blind. From the moment he entered the world, he couldn't see. He was handicapped. Maybe his parents asked the questions, did we do something wrong? 
Were we negligent in our prenatal care? Is there some sort of sin that we're not even aware of that led to our child being born this way? Maybe the next question, did God make a mistake? But God doesn't make mistakes, right? But then why is there so much brokenness? Why is there so much injustice? Why is there so much chaos and confusion in the world? See, Jesus actually gives us an answer. Of course God doesn't make mistakes. What he does is he uses the weak and seemingly foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so somebody born, and you can fill in the blank with whatever you'd like, like literally whatever you like. Someone born, blank, is an opportunity for God to demonstrate his mercy, his compassion, his love, and ultimately his glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Check out what happens next. Verse 6 through 7. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now there's literally no need to get into the method Jesus used. We're not going to talk about it. Like I have no idea what that's about. It's not like a secret recipe for healing. Um, it's not even the point. It's not even the point. The point is that this man, blind from birth, hopeless, he takes a risk and obeys the words of Jesus. I mean, ultimately, that's what it is, right? It's a risk to follow Jesus. It is. It is. No, I know ultimately, right, it's not, right? We're going to be heaven, we're going to be Jesus. Yay, right? I mean, it's cool. But like, like in the here and now, there's a risk, there's a cost. But he takes a risk. He went and washed and came back seeing. I mean, Redeemer, that's the life of faith. It's like that simple. Like, that's the life of faith. And, and, and it's very much in line with what we talked about last week. Remember what Jesus said. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you hold to my teachings, you are truly my disciples. In other words, faith hears, receives, and defines their life by the words of Jesus. Just like Abraham did. And now this guy, this man born blind, he hears the words of Jesus, he receives them, and he does it. Sure, Jesus, rub some spit mud on my eyes. I'll wash it off with some water. That's crazy. That's a crazy thing. Like, like pause. Actually think about what's going on. That's crazy. Spit mud. How many of you are willing, right, especially post-COVID, right, for me to spin some mud and slap it on your eyes, right? Like, that's insane. That's the point. That's actually the point. As we'll see in just a few minutes, this man was a beggar. He had nothing to lose. He had nothing to lose. So why not give the spit mud face mask a try? And that's why Jesus teaches that it's hard for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which also means that it's easier for those who are poor or those who suffer 
or those who are born in a way that makes life that much more difficult to live because they have way less to lose. They have way less to lose. Oh, but when you get a whiff of the kingdom, when you catch a glimpse of the treasure, when you realize just how blind you are, then all that stuff that we're nervous to lose, it starts to fade into the background. And all you see is Jesus. All you see is Jesus. Let's keep reading here. Verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him, which I don't know what that means. He kept saying, I'm the man, like I'm the guy. No, guys, it's me. It's me. Yeah, I was blind. I was a beggar. Some of you guys probably just walked right by me. I don't know. I couldn't see you. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I don't know. There's such a simplicity to this story. And what I mean, right, because it's actually not that simple. Like a man was blind and now he sees. Like there's nothing simple about it. There's something cosmic and miraculous about that. But when I say there's something simple, what I mean is that there's a simplicity to the faith that this man exhibits. He doesn't understand what happened. He just knows it happened. He doesn't get it. Well, actually, let me, let me rephrase that. I think he gets it. He doesn't understand it. Right? He doesn't know the nuances and particulars. And in fact, he doesn't even know who the guy was that did it for him. He's like, I don't know where he is. I don't know who he was. Like, maybe you guys saw him, because I don't know if you remember. I was blind. So if anyone saw him, it was probably you guys. But I didn't. So I don't, I don't know. Now we'll learn in just a few minutes that this healing has a lot more going on than simply a guy being able to now see. This is the sixth sign in John's gospel. And as we've discussed, a sign always points to something beyond itself, right? The sign is not the point. It's pointing to something else. So let's keep reading and see if we could figure out what is going on here. Verse 13 and following, it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And, and there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he had opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Now, a couple things, right? There's no need to assume that the people who brought him to the Pharisees, that they were trying to, like, rat him out, right? I know we can kind of see that, but, like, that's not how really what's going on here. The Pharisees especially in the context of a local synagogue, which is the context we're looking at, they served in a pastoral role. They wanted to understand, so they went to the people who could help them. Right? It's like if someone asked one of our pastors, like, hey, I don't understand this portion of Scripture. I don't understand this theological concept. I don't understand this man was born blind, now he could see. Right? Like, I haven't gotten any of those questions recently, but the point is, is that that's what's going on here. They're trying to get a little bit of help to understand this situation. 
Another thing, right? John points out the fact that it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, which is John's way of letting us know that some stuff's about to go down, right? A little literary foreshadowing there. And so what happens is the Pharisees start grilling the guy, asking him how he gained his sight. The group is split. There were some who thought Jesus was a sinner because he does not keep the Sabbath, while some thought to themselves that there's no way he could be a sinner and do what he did. Now, here's an important fact for us to to recognize. That when the Pharisees claim that Jesus is not keeping the Sabbath, what they mean is that Jesus is not keeping their interpretation of the Sabbath. That's important, right? Religious folks have a way of claiming their own interpretations as gospel truth. We got to be careful of that. We got to be very careful of that. Let's see what happens. Verse 18 and following. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things. Because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. This is a wild scene. This is a wild scene. And if you're a parent, this is even a little bit more of a wild scene. See, the parents were willing to admit that he was their kid, but they were unwilling to advocate for him. You guys catch that? They're like... I don't want anything to do with this. Right? Like, that's just like, like come on. Really? It's your kid. You're not going to, like, stand by him? Now, the reason, it's actually a good reason. Like, it's, it's not a good reason, but it's a, it's a logical reason. They feared being put out of the synagogue. Right? And to be put out of the synagogue was to be ostracized. And in the words of one commentator, to be virtually cut off from the religious and social life of Israel. From every point of view, social, economic, religious. And so the results were frightening, especially for people who were so poor that their son had to make his living begging. Which kind of makes you think, if they were that poor and their son was only getting by because he was begging, how tight-knit of a community was this synagogue to begin with? But but maybe that's a point for another sermon. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them. And you can even like tell as you're reading this, like, like he's getting frustrated. Like tensions are building here. I've told you already, and you would not listen. Verse 27. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Which is hilarious. Like, anyway. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So the Pharisees... They're digging their heels in here, right? And that is exactly what pride does. 
If you're married, you've probably experienced something like this. That point in an argument where you realize you're wrong, something clicks, but you've already spent however long building a case. You can't turn back. So you double down, maybe you shift the argument a bit to move it in a direction more favorable to your position. I personally, I don't have any experience with this, but that might be helpful for some of you to, to kind of illustrate what's going on here. But, but what's happening here is that, like, they just can't get it through their heads. They, like, they don't have a category for what is going on in front of them. These, these religious people who, who claim to, to speak for God, who claim to, to love God, they, they have no idea what's actually happening in front of them. And, and then look at how they respond in verse 28. They said, what did he, no, not there, not verse 28. They revile him. They reviled him, yes, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. They revile him. This reviling language, it's, it's actually really strong language, and, and it's borderline violent. So I did a quick search on the word. I have cool, fancy software that I can do that with. And, and, and I found that it's only used seven times in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, and six of the uses are found in the first five books of the Bible, which are attributed to Moses, the Pentateuch, and three of the six, this is where it's interesting, three of the six uses are used to describe how the people of Israel treated Moses when their wilderness wanderings weren't going so well. And I just thought that was fascinating. And, and maybe this is not what John was intending, but, but, but Bible writers, the authors of the scriptures, like they didn't haphazardly use words. And so, so there's this thought in my brain that, that, that he, he's using this language to kind of pop something up in our brains. All that to say, these disciples of Moses, that they claim to be, these followers of Moses, their behavior looks more like those who are opposing Moses than that of somebody who sought to embody his teachings. There's a word there for us. And if, if you know, I'm going to tell you what it is. To claim to be a disciple of someone is to claim to be a follower of that person. Does our life paint a picture of the biblical Jesus, of the lamb who was slain, or are we portraying something else? Maybe these guys got into religion for, for, for all the right reasons, right? They wanted to be religious leaders. Maybe they really loved the scriptures. Maybe they loved the people and wanted to follow God. But somewhere along the way, they forgot how blind they were. And in forgetting their blindness, they invited the darkness in. And that's the irony of this passage. Look at what they say in verse 29. We do not know where he, Jesus, comes from. These men who know the scriptures inside and out, probably more moral than any one of us in this room, they didn't know, they couldn't see. But this guy, who's only been seeing for maybe a few hours, right? He gets it. Look what it says in verses 30 and following. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. It's like, whoa, like, I, could, I feel like he's being sarcastic, right? I can't help it. Maybe that's just because I'm incredibly sarcastic. But, but he says, like, whoa, really? You don't, that's amazing. You don't know where he comes from? And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so this guy just starts preaching. Right? He just starts preaching. This poor beggar standing in front of the religious elite with nothing to lose, he defends the name of Jesus. Now what's interesting is that if you compare this story with the healing of the lame man from chapter 5, you'll notice a very different response. Just because somebody has an encounter with God, it doesn't mean that they'll follow him. And, and I'm going to leave that for you in your community groups to wrestle with comparing and contrasting chapter 5 and chapter 9. See, the Pharisees, they're steeped in pride, and so they don't like what they hear. And so what do they say? You were born in utter sin and would teach us, and they cast him out. You guys catch that, right? Right? He didn't say anything crazy. He just said, God did something really beautiful for me. He did something really miraculous. I spent my entire life in darkness. He opened up my eyes so I can see. He flipped the switch and the lights are on. Like, like there's a sense where he's saying, like, I don't think the devil did this, guys. And they respond, you were born in utter sin. And they cast him out. All right, check this out. They had the same thought as the disciples from the beginning of the passage. Only in their minds, they know who sinned. And they point their finger at him and they cast him out. In other words, they put him out of the synagogue. All right, they put him out of the synagogue. I mean, put yourself in this guy's shoes for just a minute. Like the emotional roller coaster that this man has experienced in just a few hours. He spends his entire life blind and now he sees for the first time. And then he's rejected by his parents. He gets kicked out of the only community he ever knew. Pile on top of that the fact that he lived his entire life in darkness and now the first thing he sees is rejection. That's what's happening. Because I don't know if you notice in the story, he doesn't see Jesus yet. He doesn't see Jesus yet. The first thing he sees is questioning and rejection and ridicule. That's what he's confronted with the moment his eyes are opened. I mean, there's, there's a word in there also, right? Look, maybe some of you in this room, when you came to faith, it wasn't all like celebration and, oh, my goodness, this is so good. You're Maybe like you actually experienced exactly what he's going through. Maybe there was a moment of rejection, of questioning, of being cast out of whatever community of you were, you were a part. I didn't have that experience. I don't, I don't have that experience. But for some of you in this room, maybe that was an experience for you. That's what we see happening here. But check this out, verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And he found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He answered, verse 36, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Which such is clever language there, right? And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. 
My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. That's what Psalm 27 says. Do you believe? That's the question Jesus asks. I know you've been through it. I know you've had an entire life of darkness. I know that the first thing you experienced when the lights went on was rejection, cruelty, abuse. But I'm going to carry you. And not only am I going to carry you, but I'm going to use all of that brokenness, all that pain, all that rejection, all that abuse, and I'm going to display in you the works of God. I'm going to display in you the works of God. Redeemer, that's what Jesus wants to do here. That's what he wants to do with us as a church, as individuals. He wants to take our stuff, our brokenness, our hurts, all the filth and the grime, and he wants to use it to display the works of God. The blind, the broken, the orphaned, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Now, this doesn't mean, this is so important for us to recognize. Because we can very easily read this passage and and interpret it in such a way, well, if I believe or if I pray, then whatever thing I'm going through will poof, go away. Like, that's that's not the situation. Right? The blind won't always see. The, the lame won't always start walking. That relationship that's not going well will not always get better. But that does not mean that God is not working. Right? Check this out. If, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, and, and I'm going to jump in at verse 7. And this is Paul speaking, the apostle. And, and he's talking about, like, to give a little bit of context, like Paul's, Paul's a, a pretty significant figure in the New Testament. He's, he's experienced some significant things. It says here he was brought up to the third heaven. I don't fully understand what that means. But then he says in verse 7, because he's experienced so much, because he's seen the work of God done in so many miraculous ways, he says in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, like, 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 it's like, Paul's sitting here, like, speaking to the Corinthians, like, you have no idea what I've experienced, guys. Like, I've been to the third heaven. I've seen people healed. I've seen people come to faith in some of the most insane sort of scenarios. And he says, to keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. And so what Paul is trying to articulate is very similar to what we see going down in this story, only the outcomes are a little bit different, although they're not entirely different because while this man can now see with his eyes, he lost his family, he lost his community, he lost everything he ever knew. But he gained Christ. He gained Christ. And what Paul is saying is that I actually am not going to get rid of this thorn. Whatever the thorn is, whatever the messenger of Satan is is doing to pound Paul into the ground, 
He's going to have it. He pleaded three times, which even that's interesting. It's like, he's like, I prayed three times, and God said no, so I was done praying for it. And, like maybe, and I'm not even being sarcastic here. Maybe there's a lesson in that for us. Like maybe we spend more time begging God to remove things instead of begging God to give us the strength to, to walk through it and grow in the midst of it. That's, that's like, like, right, when we pray, not my will but your will, that's, that's what we see Paul doing. Paul's like, I prayed three times. God said no. And so, so he interprets that as an answer, and, and maybe even, like, he actually heard a word from Jesus. Like, maybe, right? Like, that's what it seems to say. But he's like, okay, God, you're going to do your work in me. You're going you're gonna to give me strength in the midst of my weakness. You're going to display the works of God in me. Right? And, and, and the works of God are not always miraculous healings. Sometimes the works of God show up in the church coming around the broken in our own community. We've seen that happen here. Some of us have even been on the receiving end of that. That's a work of God. That's a work of God when someone is so broken that they call out to the community of faith and the community of faith surrounds them with tangible love, mercy, grace, and compassion to see them through that event. And so, so these brokenness sort of scenarios that we experience, they're opportunities for God to work. And how does God work? Most typically, he works through the hands and feet of the people that he's called to himself, the church, the family of God. And so when we say, like, there's an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed, he's looking at us and he's saying, guys, go do it. Go do the works of God. I showed you what they are. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gives us countless, like, like example after example on what that means. Like, enter in. Get our hands dirty. That's what an opportunity. What an opportunity to demonstrate love, mercy, and compassion. We can't demonstrate love, mercy, and compassion when there's no brokenness. Now, is there a day coming when, when all that will be wiped away? Yes, but we're not there yet, Redeemer. And so whatever it is you're praying to be removed, you might be holding on to it for a long time. But share that. Share that with the people in this community who you're close with. Allow them to pray for you. Allow them to care for you. Allow them to shoulder that burden with you. And guess what? You're on the receiving end of the works of God being displayed. That's just what the Bible teaches. I'm not making that up. That's such good news. Like, that's such good news. This is... I mean, we're, we're closing here. We're getting there. I don't know how long. It's probably a shorter one this week. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Right, this is one of the reasons we take communion every week. I don't know if you know that, right? In my old church, we used to practice what is called intinction, right? Or as my old pastor used to call it, rip and dip. We would rip a piece of the bread, and we'd dip it into the wine. And in so doing you would be reminded of the broken body of Jesus. You know what's cool? You were doing the breaking. I mean, it's not cool. Like, it's true, right? Because we're the ones who broke the body of Jesus. Like, it was us. Right? We're the ones that sinned so that he had to go to the cross. And then as you dip the bread, you see it soaking up the wine, the way blood would soak up a bandage. And you would be reminded that this violent act 
of breaking the body of Jesus, an act which we were responsible for, is covered by his blood. And you know what's cool like, about that, that image? We break and we dip, but the wine fills up on its own. Like, like we have no part in that, right? Like, it just travels. Like, if you've ever seen, like, like I don't know if you've ever, like, if, if you have kids, then they've shown you this, where they take a straw and they, they open the straw of the paper and they scrunch it up into, like, a little, like, almost like accordion thing and they put it on the table and then they take a little drop and they drop it and the straw and the, the wrapper of the straw gets bigger. Anyone ever do this? It's a fun little trick, right? Fun little trick. And, 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 it's, and why that happens is because the water just starts to soak through the whole thing. And, and that's, that's the image I want us to have. Like when, when, when you dip, and, and maybe, maybe we'll just change that at some point because I prefer it personally. But that's, you know, that's a bigger decision to make. Um, but the point is, is that the, the wine, it, we're not responsible for, like, it just does it. It just does it. We dip it and it just does it. Because that's, like, that's what Jesus does. We bring our sin to the table, right? We are so active in that, right? We bring it to the table. We, we just dump it all out here. And, right, like, imagine the communion table. This is not my notes. Imagine the communion table. And now imagine all of your stuff on the table, right? That's a, that's a table we wouldn't want anyone going near. We don't want any of our kids going near that table now. Like, think about what's on that table. Think about the, the thoughts that you think on a regular basis. They're on the table, Think about everything you've done from the moment you were able to, to, to make decisions are on that table. And some of you might even be squirming. I'm squirming right now. And then you know what Jesus does? As we throw that stuff on there and we break his body to pieces, he just lets his blood just, just rush all over it. And he just cleanses us. He cleanses us. He cleans us. He says, he says, no, 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 no. I, whatever it is that you've done, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will cleanse you. Come to me and I will free you from all that. And then when you, you stumble and fall into the same thing I forgave you for, come to me and I will cleanse you. Come to me and I will give you rest. That's the truth of the gospel, Redeemer Fellowship, you have to hear that. Whatever it is you're carrying into this room right now, whatever sin that you are struggling with, whatever shame you are carrying, the blood of Jesus covers it completely. Amen. Completely. And walk in that freedom. That's just true. We have to believe that. We have to believe that. We cannot forget how blind and how orphaned we once were. Because if and when we do forget, we'll stop seeing the gospel as life-changing power that remakes us from the inside out. And instead, you know what we'll do? And we've seen it done over and over again. We'll see the gospel as a way to gain and grasp at power. To achieve what we want rather than submitting to what God desires for us. The Pharisees used God to gain and maintain power. That's what they did. Religious folks do that stuff all the time. All the time. The man born blind was used by God to display the works of God. 
You see the difference? You see the difference? God wants to display his work in you. We are as blind and as orphaned as we can possibly be. And Jesus says, I will give you sight, not necessarily physical sight. I will let you see me. Now in a a mirror, dimly lit, one day face to face. And, And that family that cast you out, whatever community cast you out because you trusted me, he says, I'll be your family. I'll be your older brother. And my father will be your father. And look around you. You will be surrounded by brothers and sisters, dripping with the blood of Jesus. That's, that's, that's the gospel. That's good news, Redeemer. That's what we get. That's what we receive. And we can't pretend that we don't need this. We can't pretend that, that this is not something that, that we require. Right? Because the minute we forget, we're lost. We can't forget this truth. We can't forget it. And I want us, as we come to the table this morning, like, I know this morning we have oyster crackers and grape juice, right? I did. I came from a church where, where we used wine. And, and I know that's like a dicey sort of topic, and I get that. But, but there was something interesting about the wine, to, to continue on, like, this understanding, like, some of the, the imagery of the Lord's table, is that, like, unless you're, like, drinking sangria, like, wine has a bitterness to it, right? There's a bitterness to it. And that even serves as a reminder. Like, and, and forgive me, I'm not trying to like make anyone feel any sort of way. Like, the death of Christ wasn't a grape juice thing. It was a bitter pill. It was a bitter cup. We, we, so like, I want us to imagine that. Like, I know we have grape juice. I know we have oyster crackers. But I want us to imagine that this isn't like, like a quick snack after, after church. There's a bitterness to what we're doing here to remind us, to cause us to remember. And it's, I mean, it's an object lesson, right? For those of you who are teachers, especially teachers of like, of like younger kids, like you use object lessons. You show something. You let them experience something with their senses. This is such a sensory event. Such a sensory event. I had one seminary professor that said that, that, that the smell of the wine would evoke in him like these thoughts because there's, there's a smell to it. There's, there's so much there going on. And I want to encourage us to imagine this as not like a sweet little shot of grape juice, but like the bitter cup of God's wrath that was poured out upon his son to remind us, not to make us feel bad, to remind us of how much God loves you. That should make you feel good encouraged, hopeful, filled to the brim, overflowing. That's, that's good news. That's all I got this morning, guys. So let me pray for us, and, um, and we'll, we'll come to the table. Father in heaven, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the blood of your son, Jesus, It soaks through every single bit of who we are, Lord God. Every sin, 
every evil thought, every brokenness. And Lord, you use your son Jesus, the people of Christ, and your Holy Spirit to display the works of God in the midst of that brokenness, Lord God. In and through it, Lord, that's what you do. Lord, I'm so grateful for that because I know what I carry. I know where I've been. And everyone in this room, Lord, we know where we've been, Lord. And if there's someone in this room that doesn't know where they've been or doesn't remember where they've been, use this moment to remind them of what they've been saved from, Lord God. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.